last stop on round would be on my Peggy's place. Twas like taking bread to the top of the world. Twas a grand ride back, though. I knew Baker at Afcatlon, and doorsteps of our always ready. There's wheat germ in that loaf, he'd say. Get it inside your boy, and you'll be going up that hill as fast as you come down. Though this still has many times more wheat germ than ordinary bread. It's as good for you today as it's always been. That advert for Hovis Bread was released in 1973 and directed by Ridley Scott, now Sir Ridley, and an Oscar-winning film director. It was named Britain's favourite TV advert of all time. Fifty years on, Hovis is now owned by Endless, a private equity firm. Private equity has a controversial reputation that is a world away from the sentiment expressed in that Hovis ad. I'm Graham Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we look at the private equity industry and how a man who grew up in Belfast and now runs his private equity firm from Leeds does not exactly seem to fit the stereotype that many have for this industry. It's an industry that has gained a reputation for asset stripping, dodging tax and leaving the businesses it has bought drowning in debt while tycoons walk away with millions. So is that reputation justified? We speak to Gary Wilson, the co-founder and managing partner for Endless, about how he founded and runs one of the UK's largest private equity firms. Wilson is also the chairman of the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association. We seem to have a, a reputation that I don't recognise when I mix with my peers, with the people that work at my firm Endless. We've got decent people trying to do their very best. They're hardworking people trying to improve businesses, carefully invest money on behalf of other people and produce economic growth for the country. But if you read the newspaper headlines, we appear to have left a vacuum such that most people think that we're a bunch of private equity barons, cutting jobs, cutting costs, dodging taxes. That's not the reality of the situation. And if I can do one thing this year, and that is to improve our industry's reputation a bit and set us on a path where people think, actually, they are a very valuable thing to have in the British economy, then that will be success for me. Why do you think that reputation has come about? Because we have left a vacuum in not telling our story. I think there are some people in our industry, you know, in days gone by, whose attitude was, we're called private equity for a reason. We're private. That's not the case. We're called private equity because we invest off the public markets. We're investing in private businesses. And I I think we have left a vacuum for other people to fill such that when that one bad story comes along, and of course, we all know that bad news sells newspapers. When that one bad news story comes along, that's what dominates the press. We just haven't spoken up for ourselves. And I think 
perhaps those that do speak up for us are not part of the industry of today. And, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, some people saying I pay less tax than my cleaner, you know, that might have been the case 40 years ago. I don't know, but it's certainly not the case today. What sort of things can you say into that vacuum? What sort of stories do you think you need to tell? I think the first thing we need to do is connect private equity and venture capital to the man in the street, to the general public. And what is that connection? Well, there's a number of connections. Number one, we are probably investing some of their pension. So most pension schemes these days would typically invest it 10%. In the US, it's a lot higher of someone's pension pot. So I think if, if someone reads a someone reads a story in a newspaper that says a private equity firm makes 10 times its money on an investment, I think if that's someone in the street thought, that sounds like good news. I, I may have a little share of that. I hope that has increased my pension pot. Uh, I think that would help soften attitudes to us. I think if people look on, on their pension analysis, if when they get the once a year update to see how their pension is doing, and they look down the list as to what their money's invested in, if they see a line called alternatives, that is generally another word for private equity. And people will see that if they look at it, that generally in recent decades has been the best performing part of their pension fund. And so I think we need to make a connection that people on the street need to understand we're actually investing some of their money for them through their pension pot. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are millions, literally millions of people, over 2 million at the last count, according to the BVCA statistics. There are over 2 million people directly employed by companies which are owned by venture capital and private equity firms. So there is several percentage points of the workforce out there are actually employed by a private equity-owned business. And I, I think if I was in their shoes, and I recently met the TUC, for example, I, I would be keen to understand who are these people? Whose money are they investing? What is their plan for my business? Is my job safe? Etc. So I think we need to tell our story to the people on the street and the people in our companies as to what our objectives are. Gary Wilson was born in Belfast in June 1967. He was the first in his family to go to university and he then trained to become an accountant before his career unexpectedly turned to private equity. I was the youngest of eight kids in a, a family. My dad was in the RAF. My mom, as you can imagine, was a full-time mother. But I was the first in the family to go to university, went to university like thousands of other graduates at that, that time. I joined one of the big accounting firms to be trained as an accountant. Over the course of my 20s and early 30s, I then developed skills in helping businesses improve their performance. And then... I, at an early age, I became a partner in a firm called Arthur Anderson. And very shortly after becoming a partner in that firm, a scandal in the US happened called Enron. And ultimately, Arthur Anderson all over the world was in distress and was taken over by other accounting firms all over the world. And I ended up at a, a great firm over here called Ernst & Young. And I spent three years there. But it was a 
it was a, a humbling moment in my career and I thought, wow, I've always taken comfort from working in a big giant firm. And I've just realized I'm no more secure than if I was on my own. And that, that experience gave me the courage to think, Gary, go out and try it yourself. I, I got, there was a gentleman by the name of David Newitt, who was a very good friend to this day. And he initially lent myself and my business partner, Darren Forshaw, some money to start Endless. And we didn't set out to start a private equity firm. We just set out to invest in some businesses that we thought could be run better. And within 18 months, we were getting approaches from big institutions saying, will you invest money on behalf of us, please? And then literally in 2008, we became, I guess, what would formerly be known then as a private equity firm, having raised money from big institutions. Just just going back to Belfast, why did you want to go to university? Because if I'm if I'm right in thinking, you were the first one of uh, among your siblings to go to university, and and others had taken different paths. So what what yeah. was it that made you go down that route? With my dad being in the RAF, my you know I, I've got no doubt at all that my elder siblings have an IQ which is very similar to my own, but they had a very disturbed schooling in that when you're in the RAF and you're posted to different places every two or three years, they never really got a settled education. And also in those days, if you can imagine the economic pressures that come from living in a big family, when it came to being 16 years old, my mum and dad needed help. You know, the eldest in the family then were, you know, pushed into other family businesses owned by uncles and so on, you know, become an electrician, become a plumber. My sister went out to work as a secretary and, and it really was in the 70s a case of, look, we, we need money to support the family. And I guess by the time I was leaving grammar school, you know, first of all, I, I got to grammar school, which was a first, but, but I had the benefit of going to the same school for seven years before that. And then I got to grammar school and I guess the, the grammar school was very much in, in the cause of pushing its students towards university and so I found myself on this path where teachers and some were guiding me that university can be a good thing in your life you really enjoy it it'll help you earn more money enjoy have a great career etc and I guess I got swept along but I was lucky enough in that I was the youngest in the family I had a steady education at just two schools and I got to uni and, and then, of course, the troubles were happening in Belfast at the time and there weren't many job opportunities there. And it was a case, of, I mean, when I look back, you know, at my generation, most people moved to England, Scotland or further afield to try and look for employment. When you went to university and then afterwards, I think you ended up in Leeds. Yeah. Is it true? Is it true that you ended up in Leeds because you wanted to be able to watch Leeds United? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's it's a little bit less uh, romantic than that, should I say? In that, I guess when I was applying for jobs, I left it to quite late in my time at university. And in those days, I joined a firm called Touche Ross. Their London office was full. They gave me a choice of Leeds or Newcastle. I didn't have ties to either city, but I was a Leeds United supporter. So. Yes, it was the difference between moving to Leeds or Newcastle, but I guess my original hope was to go to London, but I left it too late. To, I left it too late in applying to get there, but it's, it's worked out well in the long term. 
Endless was founded in 2005, and Gary Wilson admits that the switch from being an advisor to being an investor was a big challenge. I very nearly didn't make that transition because in in my early days, I think I, I, I thought I knew more than I did. And in in year one, I made some mistakes that meant there very nearly wasn't a year two. And we scrapped our way through it. You know, the, the bad investments that I had made, I was, a, I was able to get out of those without losing very much money. And then once, once I started to learn the ropes and learn new skills and realize I'm not an advisor anymore, I'm an investor, and that requires a completely different mentality, things started to go right. We started to pick up steam. Uh, we made an investment in year one, a business called Peter Black International. It was based in Keithley, West Yorkshire, and it imported handbags and shoes primarily for Marks and Spencer. And we bought that business and about 13 months later, so we'd, the biz, our Endless had only been going for about 18 months at the time. We, we sold it for 50 million more than we paid for it. And that, that then... That there was a story on the front page of the Daily Telegraph about that deal, and that then prompted interest in Endless from other investors saying, can you invest some money on behalf of us, please? So I, I think what I've realized is that I, I sometimes say to people who are thinking of moving into private equity, look, let me describe it like this. The highs are higher, but the lows are lower. When, when you make a bad investment, you lose money. It's a terrible feeling. It can dominate your life for months. Uh, when you when you make a great investment, that is a high that you're never going to get as an as an advisor. You know when you, when you actually are able to transform the fortunes of a business and make it much more valuable, and to be able to pick up the phone to your investors and say, "I've got great news for you. We've made a fantastic return on this particular investment," and you know that that is a really that, that is a fantastic feeling. What were those mistakes in the first year and what did you think you knew that it turned out you didn't actually know? I, for one, as, as an advisor, I was used to providing advice and, and sometimes management would follow it, sometimes they wouldn't. But if they didn't, it didn't really affect my life thereafter. As an investor, if I wanted management to do something that I felt was better for the company and they didn't follow that, sometimes that would have very serious repercussions in that the company, for example, might incur losses. It might require more investments. I, I guess I was. it was the realisation that sometimes management teams don't do what you want them to do as an investor. Now, sometimes that's a good thing. Because sometimes management teams know better than me what should take place in the company. But in, the, in those early days, I think I put too much faith in existing management teams. And the, less, the big lesson I learned was very quickly get the best management teams to run your business. And I'm pleased to say in most cases, the right management team is in charge of the business. But when you're convinced that it isn't the right management team or, for example, the right CEO, you've got to make that change quickly. And perhaps back in those early days, I didn't make changes quickly enough. And that 
that just meant that the business had no chance of of improvement. Could could I just ask you about the importance of David Newer and and the support he gave you and how that support clearly was fundamental to sort of setting up Endless. How much also advice and support did did he give you and and was he acting as a mentor at the same time as well? Yeah, I mean D- David was a client of mine when I was at Ernst and Young, and you know I remember we I helped him buy a business and. He bought it very quickly, and and I, I wasn't exactly sure why he was buying it. But David's area of expertise is property, and it could be something like a sale and leaseback, or it could be property development or another angle. So he had the property expertise, and then I had the business transformation expertise. And he was a client of mine, and I'd never met someone with his enthusiasm, his organisation, his natural ability to see an opportunity. And I learned a lot from him very, very quickly. And he saw something in me because within six months of knowing each other, I had approached him and said, I'm thinking of starting up this investment firm. What do you think? And he said, yeah, let, let's go for it. And so he he clearly saw something in me. But David I, I has a rare skill. He's a fantastic buyer of assets, but he's also a fantastic seller of assets. And he's got a great manner about him. He treats people with respect. He had huge faith in me. And in that year one, when I said I made a lot of mistakes, it never fazed David once. I think many investors would have run for the hills. It never fazed David once. He kept backing Darren and myself. He just stuck with us through thick and thin in that first year. And then ultimately... What he saw ultimately started to come true in year two and beyond. And, uh, you know, I was delighted. Uh, you know, David to this day still runs a fantastic uh, property business in Yorkshire. When did the business then grow beyond one investor and how important was that for you to expand it beyond just David? Was that post the Peter Black sale? Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and clearly... David, myself, Darren, we we all knew that, look, having one investor is a high-risk situation. You know, what what if, God forbid, David changed his mind or lost his enthusiasm for the business? So David and ourselves, we were all keen to bring new investors on board. I got a, a call from a gentleman called Jakob Sidernek, who was working in California at the time. And he, he phoned me, he says, I'm in London next week, can I come and see you? And I said, well, I'm not in London, I'm in Leeds. He said, where is that? I said, jump on the train at King's Cross, I'll meet you at Leeds train station. So he came up to Leeds, and I, I think it, it it was definitely a competitive advantage that we were based in Leeds and not in London, because every other firm was based in London in those days. So he came to Leeds, he said, I love your story. Come to California. I'll introduce you to lots of investors. So Darren and I in summer 2007 ended up in the States meeting universities, charitable foundations, family offices, you know, some really famous institutions. And we came back and we we had commitments for investing 120 million with us. Now bear in mind, Graham, we had only started this business. 18 months ago, we, we were borrowing maybe one or two million at a time from David. Uh, we were buying relatively small businesses. And within 18 months, again, those investors, something about us excited them. 
such that they were willing to invest 120 million pounds, a, a sum at the time we couldn't have dreamed about. And you know, off we went. And, and so that was all formally documented, etc., in early March 2008. And we, we signed this deal, Graham, and, and I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but I, I think this is important in terms of the highs and the lows that you experience. But uh, we, we, signed that, we signed that deal on the Friday, and then on the Sunday, our business partner, Phil Tate, died in a skiing accident in France, you know, literally two days after we had raised our first fund. And Phil had been with us since day one. In fact, he'd been with us at Ernst & Young and Arthur Anderson before that. So, uh, and he was only 32 years old at the time. Uh, you know, so we'd gone from this high of, you know, of securing this backing to this incredible low of losing, you know, losing a, a key colleague uh, a couple of days later. You know, I remember having to phone around because... These investors are they're not backing me, they're backing a team. And I remember the very, very first call I had to make to them was to tell them, unfortunately, you know, one of the team that you have backed has has died in, in an accident in France. How big was the team at this point? We were only and I'm including support staff and so on, you know, we, we were only twelve people at the time. So we were a very small team. You will notice the dates here, the 2007 and 2008, the eve of the financial crisis. Endless bought bookshop chain The Works and Crown Paints in 2008. But then the financial situation got dramatically worse, including in Iceland, where Endless had money with the Icelandic bank Landsbanki. So we bought The Works... And then the second, the second business that we bought was Crime Paints, a very well-known British brand. And Axo Nobel owned it at the time, but Axo Nobel had just bought Dulux Paint. And the European Competition Commission said, you can't own the two leading paint brands, you have to sell one. They decided to sell Crime, and Crime wasn't in a very good position at the time. It was losing a lot of money, but we, we agreed a, a deal with Axo Nobel that we would buy the business for sixteen million pounds, and we bought it, and we put uh, the money in a bank account, and within within a couple of days, Landsbanki's bank accounts had been frozen, and so I had to write to my investors and say, you know, you know that sixteen million pounds you sent me last week, can you send it again, please, because it's stuck in an Icelandic bank account. And of course, they all sent it to their credit, but we immediately started a court action to try to get that £16 million back. I'm pleased to say that we eventually did get the money back, but there was definitely a heart in the mouth moment where I thought, wow, they've sent me £16 million and I've lost it within a couple of days as as the whole banking system collapsed. And, and I remember the week that we bought Crown Paints that, it was the week that Lehman Brothers collapsed and we sat around a table and said, should we go ahead with this or should we pull out? And we decided to go ahead. And, you know, again, other than the 16 million headache that we had for a while, I'm, I'm glad that we did because it proved to be one of our one of our fantastic investments. 
other than the 16 million headache that we had for a while. I'm, I'm glad that we did because it proved to be one of our one of our fantastic investments. Endless has gone on to buy more than 100 businesses, including retailers Jones Bootmaker, American Golf, and Victoria Plum, as well as the West Cornwall Pasty Company, Antler Luggage, and, as I've already mentioned, Hovis in 2020. Endless has raised more than £1.5 billion from investors and says it has protected 40,000 jobs. Gary Wilson says that a key to its success has been common sense. The reason I said common sense, I remember one of my investors saying to me, Gary, what what is the secret sauce? And I said to him, it's CS. And he said, what is that? I said, common sense. And But what's behind the common sense? It is in forensic analysis of the numbers. So for example, it's looking at a profit and loss account and going through every single line in that profit and loss account, delving into the numbers behind the, the descriptions and saying, right, are all these costs justified? It's about looking at who are your customers? Who are your profitable customers? Who are your loss-making customers? What products do you sell? Which of those are profitable? Which are loss-making? And I always think, Graham, if, if I write a book, I'll probably call it Start With Stop. And a reason, the reason I say that is one of our first actions is, is to get companies to stop doing the loss-making stuff. You know, stop doing the stuff which doesn't make any profit or makes very little profit. And, you know, it's also a case of have you got the right management team in place? Now, we have tried all sorts. I've tried analysis. I've tried all sorts of business consultants who are experts in management uh, expertise, etc. And But where, where I am in my career now is that my gut feel is almost always right when you meet people because you know i'm you know where i am in my career and i've seen so many businesses and so many management teams that i can quickly get a grasp on who's working and who's not working and look it's always my style to give people the benefit of the doubt but after three months you generally know are they the right people for the job so and it's having the courage to make a change and it's one of the most difficult things we do is make changing people because you're dealing with someone's life their family's life their their income everything that affects that and you've got to deal with them with respect you've got to you've got to fulfill their contracts but you have to do what's right for the business at the end of the day and again if i go back to crown pants i remember to start with we had 1500 employees we had 1,500 employees going home on a Friday night worried about the jobs. And to get that business back into profit, we had to take it back temporarily to 1,350 people. So then we had 1,350 people going home on a Friday night thinking, right, this is a secure job. The company's back to profitability. What we then had to do, right, let's help the 150 people that, that we can no longer employ let's help them through retraining finding alternative employment letting them know what their rights etc are and you know those 150 people got employment very quickly and indeed the business ended up re-employing some of them as its fortunes recovered so it's it's things like that it's who are you going to employ what are these people going to do and it's 
in, in the type of businesses that I'm dealing with, it's rarely a big strategic overhaul that is required. Usually the business is mature. It has a reason to exist. It just needs to do what it's doing better than it currently is doing it. What skills and attributes would you say stand out amongst the management teams that you rate? I would say emotional intelligence. Uh, I, I think if you get a CEO who is able to lead a team, who understands how his, def- his or her decisions affect people in the business, who understands that now that the business is private equity owned, it is his job to make the business worth more than when we invested. So I, I think it's leading from the front. I want to see, I want to see CEOs that are hard workers. I hate it when we have a CEO who doesn't live close to the business, who tends to end up traveling up on a Monday night and back home on a Thursday night, because other workers see that. And that, you know, that that infects the attitude of other people. We don't need to work as hard on a Monday or a Friday. The boss isn't in. I like to see, I like to see bosses visiting their businesses. You know, I like to see them. If many businesses, of course, are multi-site businesses, so I like a CEO who is out on the road, whether it's visiting different shops, different factories. You know, if if I talk about Hovis, for example. It has nine bakeries all over the country. So I want to know the CEO in that business and indeed he is, is visiting each of those sites and seeing for himself what's going on rather than just depending on what other people are telling him. Over the course of, of Endless's history, what proportion of investments have ended up being a success and what investments would you say have ended up as a failure? I always think there's two ways of classifying failure. One is, for example, we can take a business, we can turn it around, we can take it from, let's say, break even to 10 million of, of profitability, but we're not going to make an investment return on it. That, that's, a, that's an investment failure. And why might that be? It might be that, um, you know, for example, nobody else wants to buy it, or it might be that what other people value it, you, you've had to invest so much money into fixing it that when people come to buy it, you don't even get all of your money back that you've invested into it. So that's an investment failure, even though the business transformation has been successful. And then the second sort of failure is when the business itself fails, you know, when it's both an investment and a business failure. And I think those those two together would be roughly 10% in terms of the number of investments that we make. So, uh, and that is the toughest part of the job. You might have nine things going right and one going wrong, but let me tell you, when your head hits the pillow, you start thinking about the one that's going wrong and all the consequences of that. Um, and that's that's definitely a, a skill I've had to learn since becoming an investor rather than being an advisor. It's As an investor, it's with you 24 hours a day. As an advisor, you can go home after work and forget about it. You must see so many businesses come across your desk as potential opportunities. Yeah. What What is the criteria that you use to decide what to go ahead with? It, it would it would be it would be different things. So it could be a risk return analysis. So you know, let let's say I'll just pluck a figure out here. Let's say you're buying a business, you're investing twenty five million pounds. You know, so you would say 
if this doesn't go to plan, you know, how much of that 25 will we lose? Let, let's say we, we calculate, well, if it doesn't go to plan, we lose all 25. I'll say, well, to make that stack up, then we've got to try and, we, we need to have a realistic belief that we can triple our money in this situation. There might be another situation where we've invested 25 million, but for example, all of our money might be covered by assets, you know, real estate in the business or receivables or other things. So you're taking relatively little risk. And in that situation, you might say, okay, well, I'm taking little risk. I'm prepared to accept a lower return on an investment like that. For example, let's try and double our money on this one. So it, it's the risk return, and that can be linked into asset coverage. A big thing that you've got to think about is reputational risk. You know, if, if this doesn't work out, what is the reputational damage that you might incur? So if you get big, well-known businesses, you know, let's take a, a crown pence or something. You know, if that hadn't worked out, you know, that would have had an impact on the endless reputation. If it does work out, then your reputation's enhanced. So, but you've got to be really careful when you take on high profile businesses because of the reputational risk. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read bonus content from this episode and get business news and analysis throughout the week, then sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. You can subscribe and get emails into your inbox every day at offtolunch.substack.com. <laughs>